Well, good morning. We continue our Advent sermon series. It's titled Long Expected. And what we're getting at is the long expected prophet, priest, and king that Jesus is. So if you look at Old Testament, you had prophets, you had priests, you had kings, but they were different people. And what they always were longing for in the Old Testament, which we look back on, is all of those roles, prophet, priest, and king, merging into one person, into Jesus Christ. And so we're looking at each of those roles and who Jesus is in our lives. So today we'll be looking at the long-expected priest out of Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, words will be on the screen behind me. Also in our church app, there is a sermon listening guide that has the scripture printed at the top. You can follow along there as well. Hebrews 7, starting in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you've ever flown on a commercial airplane, you know that there's a call button. Usually it's located in that overhead console right next to the reading light. If you hit that button, a flight attendant will come to your seat. Now, if you've ever flown on a plane, I would guess a majority of you have, have you ever hit the call button? I would say most of us probably have not hit the call button, uh, even though there probably have been times, maybe you wanted a drink before they were gonna come pass them out, or you wanted a pack of peanuts before they were gonna pass them out. Whatever the need is, you, you've probably had a need, but you haven't hit the button. Now, why? There's a lot of reasons. Could be shyness, could be pride, could be you don't wanna be a burden. We're a needy people, but we have a really hard time admitting it. We are a little like the uh, Black Knight in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which for those of you that don't know that movie, it's a 1975 British comedy film. It's one of those movies that has the cult-like following. And there's a scene in that movie where the Black Knight is in a sword fight and he gets his right arm chopped off, cut off completely at the shoulder and there's blood, red dye, spurting out of his arm. And he says, it's just a flesh wound. It's just a flesh wound. And he keeps fighting as if nothing has happened. That's what we do. We do it all the time. It's just a flesh wound. It's not a big deal. I'm really not needy. I'm really okay. I've got things together. If you're willing to admit your neediness, 
then verse 25 in Hebrews 7 is particularly sweet. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is able to save you completely. The question is why? Why is he able to save you completely? Why can you trust Jesus to meet all of your needs? The answer is found in what becomes before and what comes after, verse 25. First, you can trust Jesus to meet all your needs because he is the eternal priest for you. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, what is a priest? Verse 22 hints at the answer. This makes Jesus the guarantor. That word can also read mediator of a better or eternal covenant. It says Jesus is the mediator of an eternal covenant. Priests were mediators in the Old Testament. And a mediator is someone who goes between two people who are in conflict. So the Old Testament priests were the ones that went between a holy God and a sinful people. Now throughout this chapter in Hebrews, the, the author is, is contrasting Jesus as great high priest and these Old Testament priests. The priests in the Old Testament were temporary. There were many of them because they died. And so some other priest had to step up and fill the office. It was a temporary priesthood. But Jesus' priesthood is permanent. As a priest, he became man. He put on your skin. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And where he serves right now as your eternal priest, your forever priest, and because he's priest forever, he can save you to the uttermost, verse 25. It's because he's eternal that he can save you to the uttermost. Now, that word uttermost means always or forever. So just like Jesus' permanent priesthood is being contrasted to the temporary priests in the Old Testament, so also salvation forever is being contrasted with salvation in the moment. Because Jesus is eternal, meaning that he exists now outside of time. He stepped into time when he put on flesh, when he put a body on. It's what we celebrate in Advent. When he came in the flesh, he stepped into time. He was confined by time but he rose from the dead and now exists in a body, but outside of time in eternity, which means that he sees yesterday, today, and forever all at the same time. 
He saves you and he intercedes for you from that perspective, from that eternal perspective. Jesus saves you, which means that Jesus is committed to saving you eternally, not necessarily saving you from a dark, troubling, or hellish moment because he's outside of time. He sees the big picture. He sees the the holistic picture. You and I view life like watching a parade through a knot hole in a fence. That's how we view life. We don't see what's coming. We don't see what's going. We see the moment. We are limited in our perspective. Jesus views life like watching a parade from a helicopter. He sees what's coming, what's going, all at the same time. Oftentimes, when we're viewing the parade through a knot hole in the fence, that picture of life, what we see through that knot hole is darkness, trouble, hardship, suffering. Sandra McCracken, she's a singer-songwriter. She shared her experience of boarding an airplane early one morning on the way to Florida for a music gig. She was on the plane. She was sitting in a westward-facing window seat. So as she looked out her window, she saw utter darkness. She said most of the window shades in the cabin were closed. But after a couple minutes, someone that was sitting across from the aisle from her at an eastward-facing window seat pulled up the window shade. And she said immediately this blaze of pinkish sunlight just crashed across her face. And when that happened, she turned back to her window, the westward-facing window, and looked out, and it was still darkness. The sun had just crept over the horizon. So one side of the cabin was in glorious light, and the other side of the cabin where she was sitting was still in the shadows of darkness. If that's not a vivid picture of your life, of my life, of our lives in this broken world, I don't know what is. At any moment, at any moment, you look out of one window and you see darkness. You see trouble. You see moments that are incredibly grieving. But at the very same time, there's light coming from the other window, a glorious light that absolutely pierces the darkness. As your eternal priest, Jesus has passed through those dark, hellish moments and even went a step further into darker, more hellish moments in his death on the cross. But he didn't stay in the darkness. He passed through it and he rose from the dead into the glorious light of heaven and that is from where he now saves you and intercedes for you from that perspective. 
that eternal perspective. And what that means as the pilot, so to speak, of your life, as the one who's in control, as the one who is leading you, sometimes he doesn't remove that momentary darkness. In fact, sometimes he draws the shade up so that you can stare into the darkness because that darkness only accentuates the light that is piercing in, his glorious light from heaven. You can trust Jesus to save you forever because he's already arrived at the destination. He's already arrived. And he's therefore able to save you from that perspective with the purpose of bringing you to be with him one day. Now, what's the destination? What are the promises that Jesus have put before you? What are the bedrock promises that are the destination that Jesus has guaranteed or promised you? There's three, there's three bedrock promises. Number one is that his perfection will be your perfection one day. Number two, that your body will be like his glorious body. And number three, that you will enter the new heavens and the new earth just like he ascended into heaven. And those three bedrock promises speak into the darkness that you face every day. Three areas of darkness, your imperfection, your sin that you face every day. Bodily sickness and disease that you face. Spiritual doubts, the dark night of the soul when you wonder deep down, am I really worthy to one day be in God's presence? Am I worthy to step into the heavens into the new earth one day. And that ray of light from Christ, that ray of light that has those three promises attached to it, his perfection will be yours. Your body will be like his. You will enter the new heavens and the new earth just like he ascended into heaven. Those promises, that ray of light, pierces into those areas of darkness that you and I face on a daily basis. What is true of Jesus is true of you. If you've placed your faith in him. You can trust Jesus to meet all of your needs because he's the eternal priest who is saving you eternally. Why can you trust him to meet your needs? He's the eternal priest. Second, he is the perfect priest for you. Second half of verse 25, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That word intercession means to plead or to make an appeal. It means that Jesus is constantly pleading your case. This conjures up courtroom imagery where the case is being made or someone's case is being appealed that Jesus pleads for you. The question is, here's the critical question, that when Jesus intercedes for you before the Father, what does he plead? What does he plead? The answer is found in verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Again, Jesus' priesthood is contrasted with these Old Testament priests. When they offered up a sacrifice, they first had to offer up the sacrifice for their own sin, because they weren't perfect. Then for the sin of the people. They had to offer it up for themselves, and then for the sin of the people. The Old Testament priests did not plead their own merits, clearly. They pleaded the merits of this animal, a lamb, that was without blemish or defect. Now, clearly, animal, animals, and Hebrews talks about this, could never take away sin. It was pointing towards the lamb to come, the one who would be without blemish, without defect, the one who would be holy, unstained, innocent, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is not only priest, but he's the sacrifice. He's both priest and sacrifice. So back to the question. When Jesus intercedes for you before the Father, what does he plead? He doesn't plead your merits. He pleads his merits. He pleads his life when he pleads for you. Now, if we flesh this out in the courtroom scene, the prosecutor's the devil. Scriptures say the devil is the accuser of God's people, meaning the devil is the one who is prosecuting. The devil pleads your merits, your lack thereof. And let me just be frank. You give the devil a lot of reasons to plead your lack of merits, and I do too. We are a sinful people. We give him plenty of ground to work with, plenty of ground. And that's what he does. He pleads our lack of merits. Jesus doesn't argue with the devil. Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 no. No, they're not that bad. They're really not that bad. Yeah, there's some stuff. No, they're, they're much better than your. He doesn't argue with the devil because he doesn't plead your merits. Jesus pleads his merits before the Father. He pleads his life before the Father. And his life is verses 26 and 27. Holy, unstained, innocent life. That's what Jesus pleads. Now, understanding this is at the very heart of what it means to experience joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Understanding this intercession, understanding what Jesus pleads is at the heart of what it means to have joy in a relationship with him. Right? The devil is the accuser, the prosecutor, but the devil's also the great joy stealer. And his work goes back to the very beginning with our first parents. When the devil tempted our first parents, it was a temptation towards independence. He came to them and basically said, you will do better on your own. You will be happier on your own. God is holding out on you. You know the good that you need. They succumbed to that temptation and entered a life of fending for themselves, defending themselves. 
and it was an epic disaster. Epic disaster. You and I inherit that independent gene from our first parent. We inherit that independent gene. And because of that, we view the courtroom scene that's laid out in Hebrews 7 very differently, at least on a functional basis. We agree that the devil's the prosecutor. We do. Yes, he's the accuser of God's people. We agree with that. But then functionally, maybe not intellectually, but functionally, we view Jesus as pleading our merits and arguing with the devil and winning the argument. Jesus pleading that we're really not that bad. Right, the devil's lying, you're really better than that. And when we enter into that, when we believe that, and that's our view of of how it works out, then we believe that we have to help Jesus win the case. Which is to say, we have to bring our independence, our self-sufficiency, our put-togetherness to Christ so that he has something to work with as he's arguing this out. I'll tell you that when you engage in that and you believe that, it absolutely steals joy. And one other thing, that when you engage in that and you believe that you have to bring your put-togetherness and your self-sufficiency and your strength to Jesus to help him out in this courtroom scene. Then you're left with pretending and hiding. Then you're left at the black night, arm cut off, blood gushing, saying, it's just a flesh wound. I'm really not that unput together. I'm really not that bad. That's where it, it leaves you. And if you view the courtroom scene this way, Right, that the, the devil pleads your merits, lack thereof, and that Jesus pleads your merits, if you view it this way, then you mistake what brings Jesus joy. Because if you view it that way, you believe that your self-sufficiency, your strength, your put-togetherness is what brings Jesus joy. Let me say it this way. You can't correctly assess what brings Jesus joy until you get his intercession right? You can't assess what brings Jesus joy until you get this intercession scene right. Jesus actually agrees with the prosecutor. He doesn't argue with the devil. He says, devil, you're right. You are absolutely right. They are unworthy. They are sinful. He agrees with the prosecutor. So you say, how does he shut the mouth of the prosecutor? He doesn't shut the mouth of the devil by trying to say you're good. He shuts the mouth of the devil by pleading his life and pleading his merits. And when you understand that, then you realize the only way that you can receive the defense of Christ is not by bringing your put-togetherness to the table for him, but simply by running from your independence and your self-sufficiency and running in dependence to Jesus. 
Verse 25, you draw near to God through Christ, not on your own. In his book, The Grace Awakening, Chuck Swindoll tells a story about Thomas Jefferson and some of his companions that were going across the countryside on horses. And they came to this, this river that had left its banks because there had been a storm. And so this flooded, swollen river was so high and the flood was so severe, it had washed the bridge out. And so they were forced to ford this river on horseback. And it was dangerous, it was life-threatening. There was a traveler that was not part of their group that stood back to kind of watch how this was unfold, would unfold. And a couple of the men mounted their horse, plunged into the river, safely made it to the other side. And so this traveler, seeing that there was potentially a safe crossing on horseback, said to Thomas Jefferson, can you ferry me across the river? And he said, absolutely, without hesitation. This traveler jumped on his horse. They ferried across the river, got to the other side. He slid off the saddle onto the dry ground, and, and, and Jefferson's companions kind of looked at him and said, why in the world did you think you could ask the president for a ride across? Why did you choose him? And the man was kind of shocked. He said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know it was the president. He said, but as I looked at your faces, I saw a no. And as I looked at his face, I saw a yes. When you look to Jesus through the eyes of faith in the midst of your need, do you see a yes face or a no face? And by that, I don't mean yes, I would like to help you and no, I'm not going to help you. I mean, yes, it would bring me great joy to help you and meet your need. By a no face, I mean, I will meet your need, but I'm really disappointed in you. I'll get you across the river, but I'm really disappointed you don't have a horse of your own. And even if you didn't have a horse of your own, I'm really disappointed that you don't have the strength and the courage to get across that river on your own. That's what I mean by yes face and by no face. What brings Jesus joy? Is it your strength? Is it your self-sufficiency? Is it your put-togetherness? No, what brings Jesus joy is your weakness, your neediness, and your unput togetherness. When you bring that to him, it fills his heart with joy. It brings him great joy to intercede for you before the Father and to plead his merits and his strength over you. He loves it. He loves it. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He loves when you need him. Jesus Christ loves when you need him. 
It brings him tremendous joy. And this understanding of Jesus as perfect priest has a profound effect on the warmth, the attitude, the feel of a community. Because people experience the yes or no face of Jesus through the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ, the church, the community that communicates either the yes face, would love to meet your need, or the no face. Now let me describe what that is. When someone comes to you with their weakness, when someone comes to you with their neediness, how do you respond? Now I don't just mean externally, I mean internally. So you might put on the good external, but inside. What, what, what are you thinking when someone comes to you with their weakness, when their neediness? I'll tell you, there are probably three categories of responses. Compassion, judgment, or fix it. And I will tell you that only one of those is a yes face. Two of them are no faces. You start with judgment. Judgment's a no face. The judgment face says, I'm disappointed that you can't pull it together like I do. I'm disappointed that you can't think rationally like I do. I'm disappointed that you can't see the facts and realize there's no reason to be anxious or fearful. That's the judgment phase. And you don't have to say that. Let me just tell you, what you feel inside, what you think at a heart level, it comes across in your face. Okay, so the judgment phase comes across loud and clear, whether you speak it or not. The fix it. The fix it response is also a no phase. Because the fix it response says this. Let's quickly get you out of this weakness into a place of strength. Now, fix it doesn't go to judgment, which is good, but fix it says there is no value, there is no redemption in you dwelling in your weakness. So I'm gonna help you very quickly get out of your weakness into a place of strength, and I won't say this, but by the way, if I can get that to happen, then I don't have to be burdened by your weakness and spend a lot of time dwelling with you in your weakness. There's a real self-serving place in the fix-it response. Only one of these categories is a yes face, and that's the compassion face. The compassion face says, I see your weakness. I see your pain. I see your neediness, and I welcome it, and it brings me great joy to be of comfort to you in the midst of it. With great joy, I will dwell with you in your weakness. And you don't have to say all that because the compassion face screams it in responding to people. It brings Jesus great joy when you bring your weakness and your neediness to him. It brings him tremendous joy when you come to him and need him. He loves it. And the scriptures make this very tight link between Jesus as eternal and perfect priest 
and his body, which is to be little pea priests. 1 Peter 2.9 calls the church to be a royal priesthood. That means he calls the body of Christ to be little p priests who are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, the great high priest. The degree to which you trust Jesus to meet all your needs is the degree, as eternal and perfect priest, is the degree to which you will faithfully serve as his hands and feet to meet the needs of others. Pastor Ray Ortland expresses this really well. I will close with this, and I want you to think on this and reflect on this. The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty. And every non-gospel positions us to treat one another like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally on what we believe vertically. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our eternal priest with the assurance that he saves and intercedes from his eternal perspective, seeing it all at once, so that even when we are in a moment that is hard, dark, that we can be assured that Jesus, our eternal high priest, is interceding and saving with the big picture in mind. Father, thank you that Jesus is our perfect priest as well, that he pleads his life before you, over us, and by faith in Jesus, Christ's righteousness and holiness becomes ours. Father, for those of us who are continuing to bring our strength and put togetherness to the table, feeling like our self-sufficiency is something that would bring you joy, would you, by your Holy Spirit, convict us that we would believe that it's our weakness, our neediness, our unput-togetherness, that when we bring that to Christ, that that fills him with joy. And Father, as we believe that and live that out before Christ, would you make us a people that respond to the weakness of the body of Christ, the, the weakness of the community with compassion? Not judgment, not fix it, but comfort and compassion. Father, as we receive this meal today, this Lord's Supper, would you comfort us with it? Would you remind us that this is the Lord's Supper? This is the Supper of Jesus Christ, our eternal and perfect priest. 
Father, would you help us in these coming moments to bring our weakness and our sin and our neediness to the table and experience the joy of you, Jesus, pleading your merits and your strength over our lives. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.